1989, a man walked up on stage at the annual Tim Beckley's New Age UFO Fest in Phoenix, Arizona, and changed everything that anyone has ever claimed to know about the Philadelphia Experiment. He claimed to have been a surviving member of the experiment, and his story was described as being so strong, different, and detailed. The whole place hung on every word. When all was said and done, the crowd was split on whether or not the man was telling the truth. Among his entire story, he touched on topics such as the Philadelphia Experiment, the Montauk Project, time travel, living two lives back to back, but also in the same timeline. But what do you think? Here's his story. Welcome back to Infinite Rabbit Hole. Welcome back to the Infinite Rabbit Hole Podcast. I am your host, Jeremy, and tonight we'll be diving into part two of our coverage of the Philadelphia Experiment. Hang tight, travelers. This one is way out there. I'm not going to waste any time. We're jumping right in. Enjoy. Ed Cameron was born on August 4, 1916, in Bayshore, Long Island, New York, to father Alexander Duncan Cameron Sr. and an unnamed mother. Ed and his half-brother Duncan were both raised by their wealthy Aunt Arnold, while their father was enlisted in the U.S. Navy during World War I and remained on active duty until 1930. After graduating high school, Ed went on to first attend college at Princeton and eventually graduated with a PhD in physics from Harvard. Ed's brother Duncan also received a PhD in physics, but he went to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Once both brothers graduated in the summer of 1939, both would then commission into the Navy as lieutenant junior grades in September of the same year. After completing a 90-day course in Providence, Rhode Island for a quote-unquote special assignment, both brothers were assigned to the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, where they were attached to what was then referred to as Project Invisibility. Against commonly believed knowledge, according to Ed, the first successful test of Project Invisibility was at the Brooklyn Navy Yard in 1940. After the successful test, the project was officially renamed Project Rainbow, and the newly funded official top-secret offices were then set up in the Philadelphia Navy Yard. In January of 1941, while the office was being planned and constructed, the brothers went on to do what sailors do in the Navy and were deployed attached to the USS Pennsylvania, where they toured the Pacific until October of the same year when the Pennsylvania was set to dock in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. From Pearl Harbor, the brothers took leave and set off for San Francisco before they were to finally head back to the Philadelphia Navy Yard to finish their work with Project Rainbow. Ed claimed that the idea for what would eventually be known as the Philadelphia Experiment and Project Phoenix began in 1931 and was implemented by none other than the Yugoslavian-born electrical engineer Nikola Tesla. 
The goal at the beginning was to make minesweepers and battleships invisible to not only radars and magnetic proximity mines, but to the naked eye as well. The original team for the then called Project Invisibility included the Dean of the University of Chicago, John Hutchinson, Austrian physicist Dr. Emil Kurtenau, physician Townsend Brown, and various members of the US Navy. Albert Einstein would join the project when it was officially stationed at the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, and the last major member of the team would be added later on, a Hungarian-American mathematician, physicist, computer scientist, and engineer who would eventually go on to pioneer the modern computer, Dr. Eric von Neumann. Tesla removed himself from the project due to the Navy wanting to push trials with live humans on board. Tesla was found dead 10 months later in his hotel room. Ed's first time running a test was in July of 1943. He claimed that he and his brother ran the equipment in the hold below the deck which was under the waterline. The ship was invisible for 20 minutes and caused serious ill effects to anyone outside the steel hold of the ship mainly those on the deck. Ed claimed that this was due to too much power being applied. The next attempt took place on August 12th of 1943, and this is what everyone knows as the famous Philadelphia experiment with the USS Eldridge. That's right, August 12th, 1943. Not the same as the Alande letters. This time, they turned the power down in order to only gain invisibility to radar systems. The test started off well, and outside observers could vaguely see the ship through a green mist for the first 60 seconds or so before it completely disappeared. Four hours later, it had reappeared in the exact same location. What took place in those four hours was a disaster. Some of the ship was damaged beyond repair and some parts were just missing completely. After Ed and his brother had the equipment running, the men walked the passageways of the ship where they were shocked to see hell breaking loose. Many members of the crew were embedded into the bulkhead, one of which had his hand embedded into the steel of the ship and could not move from his location as his hand had literally fused into the wall, causing him to be physically attached at a point just higher than the wrist. He was the only one fused with the ship that survived and had to have his hand amputated in order for him to be removed from his position. Among those that were not embedded into the ship, there was a hysteria that overcame all the men. Each and every member outside of the steel hole at the time were acting completely insane. The brothers ran back to their control room through a world that was flashing in and out of existence and attempted to shut the system down. Nothing would budge. So Ed and Duncan Cameron made the decision to jump overboard, where instead of landing in water like they hoped, they landed on solid ground in Fort Hero, the military facility in Montauk, New York. Yes, they were in the middle of the ocean. They jumped off the side of the ship during their invisibility period and landed on solid ground in Fort Hero, Montauk, New York. And to their surprise, they were no longer in 1943. They had jumped ahead 194 years to the year 
21-37 in Montauk, New York's then re-established Fort Hero. They would stay six weeks in the year 2137 at a hospital being treated for radiation burns. To their surprise, Dr. Newman was there, and he looked about 30 or 40 years older than they remember. More on why soon. Don't worry, we're getting to that. But after the six weeks, Ed was healed, and his brother Duncan was not. For reasons still not clear to him, he was then sent by the 2137 version of Project Phoenix to the year 2749, where he spent two years learning specific technologies that they could use in other times that he had access to travel back to. I know this is a lot, guys. <laughs> Hang tight with me. To kind of get everybody up uh, today on Project Phoenix, by the way, that was one of the projects in Montauk, New York, during the famous Montauk Projects. During his time in 2749, Ed remembers floating cities and society run by computers in 1951 was retrieved back to the year 2139 where his brother was finally healed enough to go back to their original timeline. So Ed was in 2749 for two years. He left in 2751 and then went to 2139 where the two brothers had landed in 2137. Okay, I just want to make sure you guys are up to date there. So the brothers were sent back to 1983 in a failed attempt to get them back to the Eldridge in 1943. So yeah, all right, so we're going from 2137 to 2749, back to 2139, and now they missed their jump to 1943 and landed in 1983. They had missed their mark by 40 years. There, they had been briefed by an older version of John Eric Von Neumann, and he was now the head of a new project, which he referred to as the Phoenix Project, which he described as the grandchild of Project Rainbow. Ed recognized this version of Von Neumann as being roughly the same age as the one from 2137. Ed and Duncan were only in 1983 for roughly 12 hours as the older version of Von Neumann had told them that they had to return and destroy the equipment on board the Eldridge in order to break the time loop that was created between every group of 40 years before 1943 and after. Time travel was impossible outside of the 40-year span, and with this time loop being present and restrictions on Project Phoenix were jeopardizing the mission as they had accidentally created an artificial reality within the loop that halted progress in time outside of a thin bubble. The men were sent back to 1943, but unfortunately Duncan never made it. Ed would later find out that he was trapped in 1983, so Duncan was unsuccessfully transferred back to 1943 on, on board the Eldridge, but not Ed. Ed Cameron made it back, but not his brother Duncan. It was up to Ed to destroy the system and end the experiment, so he grabbed an axe from the wall by a fire extinguishing station and swung away. The details after this are a little unclear, but this is when the ship eventually returned to the Philadelphia Navy Yard after about four hours. Soon after the test with the Eldridge, Ed was transferred to the Los Alamos National Security Science Lab in New Mexico, 
where he was in charge of files and records specifically dealing with the development of the atomic bomb, among a few other things. Just before the Roswell crash in 1947, Edward Cameron was removed from the Navy and would be officially charged with articles of espionage due to his purposeful demolition of the tech for Project Rainbow. From Los Alamos, he was sent by train to the gates of Fort Hero in Montauk, New York. After leaving his wife and child in New Mexico, he would never see them again. When he arrived in Montauk, he was rather quickly time-shifted back to 1983, where he was placed squarely into Project Phoenix, where he was age-regressed to about nine months old and had all memory removed of his life as Ed Cameron. When he was raised to about a year old, he was sent back in time to 1927 to substitute for a family's dead son. This is when Ed Cameron became Al Bielik. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Al Bielik. In 1945, Al Bielik was drafted into the Navy in response to World War II until 1946. After a short time in the Navy, he attempted a business venture, which he quickly realized was a failure, and enrolled in college where he would eventually graduate from UCLA with a degree in electrical engineering. In 1953, he joined the previously mentioned Project Phoenix where he worked on the computer interface for the infamous psychic chair, which was used for what was referred to as time tunnels. It was during this time with Project Phoenix that he was teamed up with two other men, Preston Nichols and Duncan Cameron. Sound familiar? The purpose of Project Phoenix was to generate these time tunnels in which certain people of the government could use to travel both time and space. Note, there were many projects going on at Montauk during this time and throughout its lifetime. This is merely just one of them. We'll jump into Montauk deeper eventually, both tonight and in future episodes of Infinite Rabbit Hole. The technology was given to the human race by alien beings from the Orion group. The specific beings that helped the most were the beings from Cyrus Alpha. Among the types of alien races that roamed the halls of Montauk, there were reptilians, greys, and a humanoid race known as the Antares. The time tunnels were a completely alien technology, and we as humans needed their assistance to tweak it to work for us, and in 1977, the tunnels became fully operational for human use. But on August 12th of 1983, the project was deliberately crashed and sabotaged by someone on the inside. This sabotage was due to a Sasquatch-like creature running amok and destroying everything in its path. The beast was 12 feet tall and supposedly manifested by someone's thoughts within the trust of one of the Montauk trials. Mars. There were many uses for the time tunnels. 
one of which was to assist the Martian colonies, which had been there since the early 1970s. The expedition was very successful, as they discovered many artifacts, a few ruins from the ancient cities, pyramids, and sealed openings that seemed to guard entrances to a possible sub-Martian layer of land. So Project Phoenix was used in order to send camera drones into time tunnels to specific coordinates under the surface of Mars for exploration purposes. When the coast was clear and there were no threats found, Al Bielik and Duncan Cameron were sent to help with explorations. Although no evidence was found of present life, there was plenty of evidence that life was once there. An entire underground lighting system was discovered and still worked, and little caches of artifacts were found sporadically in seemingly random places. Bielik and Duncan took many trips to Mars by way of Project Phoenix without the knowledge of the government. The task of traveling through these time tunnels was surprisingly easy. Nobody was needed to be left behind to monitor anything. You simply had to input a magnetic tape that had a record of a previous location in time and space, and the computer would input all of the celestial data, including planet vertical rotation of both Mars and Earth, as well as a rotation around the Sun, and even the entire solar system's movement through the cosmos, and the computer would calculate perfectly where to create the tunnel to. When they were discovered to be going on these little joy rides to Mars, both Al and Duncan were removed from the project. Even though they were no longer a part of the project, Al had been surprisingly debriefed on January 1st in 1984 and was told that the entire project was over and his memory of the project was erased. And on January 1st, 1986, Fort Hero and the entire Montauk military complex was turned over to the New York State Parks Commission. And so on. In August of 1985, all three men, Al Bielik, Duncan Cameron, and Preston Nichols, who had previously worked together in Project Phoenix and remained unknowing of their past, were all in the same place at the same time. Coincidence. Al Bielik and Preston Nichols being friends, besides their work on the project, were in Fort Hero touring the area and the same went for Duncan Cameron. All three men sensed terrible things during their visit. This is what Duncan and Nichols believed was the true reason why their memories slowly came back to them. Duncan and Preston began remembering horrible things that they had done as well as other strange things that they had witnessed years before Al did. It wasn't until Al watched the movie titled The Philadelphia Experiment that he too began remembering his past. All three men described the gentle return of memories as an intermittent stream of information. It didn't all come back at once. Instead, it came back in small flashes until the stream becomes a river and eventually you are an ocean of a past you never knew existed. To build upon information already put out, Al remembered that Preston was the technical station master who eventually went off to work on a parallel project in Brentwood, Long Island, where he designed RF or radio frequency transmitters and pulse modulator systems. He was fired in July of 1990 after 15 years of working for an unnamed aerospace company after his time at Brentwood. The reason for his release is unknown. 
but he died shortly after. According to Al Bielik, the Greys have been here for a very long time, and we had discovered and contacted them for the first time in 1887 when President Grover Cleveland commissioned an investigation into strange craft being spotted in the sky all over the country. The Greys used the Philadelphia Experiment in 1943 to travel via a large hole in space-time that was created by the experiment. It all came to fruition in 1983 after decades of testing and space-time travel when the tear grew large enough and allowed incredible amounts of alien ships into our reality, which brought on a massive invasion of Earth. The human race was confronted with technologies that they couldn't dream to defend against. So President Eisenhower signed a non-interference treaty in order to buy some time and see if we could do better after years of technological advances. It was due to this treaty that the Phoenix Project in Montauk, New York was born as a sort of continuation to Project Rainbow. Many people within Fort Hero did not like this new addition to their lives. One such person was Duncan Cameron, friend and co-worker of Al Bielik and brother to Ed Cameron. So Duncan went on to lead a revolt against the project and deliberately attempted to destroy key technologies tied to Project Phoenix. Dr. John Von Neumann would find out about this attempt long before it was attempted, and due to his position as head of the Phoenix Project and access to time travel, he was able to successfully stop the attempt. He did not want this to happen due to the involvement of alien beings in terms of the treaty. So Von Neumann traveled in time to 2137, where Project Phoenix was successfully revitalized after the alien invasion. And from there, Mr. John Von Neumann replaced all of history and set us onto our current timeline. That, my friends, is the fantastic story of Al Bielik and Ed Cameron. Yes, there is a little bit more. Unfortunately, I could not make it fit. There there was parts of this, and it's it's so hard to find what is following continuity. So many people have retold this story, and it seems like there has been a really bad issue with the game of telephone. It's a good one. It's definitely out there. What do you think, travelers? How do you feel about Mr. Al Bielik? Well, that's it. This was one hell of a ride, and by far... The Philadelphia experiment was the longest I had to take to research, plan, and build a presentation. I hope you all liked it. Stay tuned, because next time we do one of these documentary episodes, we're going back to the beginning of human history. But not the one we are all familiar with. No. Come on now. This is Infinite Rabbit. No. We're going swimming in the vast lakes of the Great Rift Valley in West Africa. We're going to peel back the layers bit by bit as we attempt to answer a few burning questions. Why are human beings so different? Why are we naked compared to our great ape cousins? Why are we bipedal when the only other animals in the world that spend their whole lives on two legs are birds? That's right, travelers. We're going to walk the path less traveled and dive into our past. 
where we might just find something that we weren't expecting. Next time on the Infinite Rabbit Hole documentary series, The Aquatic Ape Theory. I would like to thank you once again for tuning in to the Infinite Rabbit Hole podcast. Please make sure to give us a follow and one of those beautiful five-star ratings on your podcast player of choice. If you would like to join the conversation and stay up to date on all things Infinite Rabbit Hole, head on over to Facebook and search for the Infinite Rabbit Hole Facebook group. You'll know it's us when you see the logo. I now do this show 100% all by myself. All editing, research, recording, and planning are done by me. The one thing that sucks about that is the cost to get this content to you. Subscriptions for editing, recording software, new hardware, and research books all come directly from donations in my pocket. So if you would like to help contribute to the cause, there are a few ways to do so. First, head on over to anchor.fm forward slash infinite rabbit hole and click on the subscribe button where for $5 a month you'll get access to all our old episodes that will never see the free spotlight ever again. It's horrible stuff, but if you're into that kind of thing, then go check it out. Second, head on over to infiniterabbithole.com and click on the IRH merch shop tab and grab yourself a sweet t-shirt, sticker, or whatever else you see that you wouldn't mind owning. Until next time, travelers, I'm Jeremy, and I'll see you at the next fork in the path of the infinite rabbit hole. Bye. Imagine.